a windfall of cash is making Detroit's arts and culture scene a whole lot richer. The Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation has announced a multi-year, $100 million commitment to 11 arts organizations, some in Detroit, some in the surrounding suburbs, creating an endowment that will generate operating money for decades to come. The list includes cultural name brands like the Detroit Symphony Orchestra and the Detroit Institute of Arts, as well as smaller museums like the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn and the Holocaust Memorial Center in Farmington Hills. I spoke with the Wilson Foundation as well as two leaders of the organizations who will receive funding about what this means for them and the arts and culture community at large. Uh, Dave Egner, uh, President and CEO, Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation. Robin Terry, Chairwoman and CEO, Motown Museum. Uh, Rabbi Ellie Meyerfeld, CEO at the Holocaust Memorial Center in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Let's really try to explain what happened here with this gift that was made from the Wilson Foundation, Dave, if you want to start and kind of set the scene for us. The $200 million announced by the Wilson Foundation for Arts and Culture split between Western New York and Southeast Michigan. Ralph Wilson, owner of the Buffalo Bills, was his hometown was Detroit, but his adopted hometown and home of his beloved Bills was Buffalo. So that's why the two spaces... We're looking at funding some key arts and cultural institutions and their operations for the next nine years directly and building an endowment that will fund them forever. Now, with the Wilson Foundation in 2018, we see a massive investment in, in parks recreation that um, is certainly in line, with the, in line with the quality of life gifts that you tend to focus on. Arts and culture, a little bit outside of what we've seen you make gifts to. So, what was the logic? What was the thinking behind jumping into this sector? This particular gift is a focus in our economic development area. Arts and cultural institutions are themselves economic drivers. They employ people. They bring in visitors. They Those visitors spend money. Um, so they, they drive a portion of the economy. I think more importantly than that, in my opinion, is the role they play as talent attractors and retainers. If we don't have arts and culture, I mean, who wants to live in a community without arts and culture? If we don't have arts and culture, we can't keep the talent here that our workforce needs to thrive. Let's talk a little bit to to people with these organizations. I mean, Robin, can you talk about who you see coming to the museum, sort of that real life effect of bringing people to the community because they want to visit the Motown Museum? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the, I think one of the things that's most um, significant about this gift from the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation is that it is giving us the freedom to do what we do and bring people to the city of Detroit. Mm -hmm. Motown Museum is one of the leading international tourist destinations in the state of Michigan. And so we we see people from all over the world on a daily basis. Many speak no English, Mm -hmm. um, but they make the pilgrimage to Detroit to come to this little house where, you know, Motown was born and this music that has been the soundtrack of their lives um, was created. And so it becomes this authentic touchstone that is seated right here in the heart of our community. So to Dave's point about, you know, these our cultural institutions being economic drivers, we see that impact and we see the um 
the tourists who, who make their way to Detroit, you know, just to experience that authentic Detroit Motown experience. Yeah, many, been, many don't speak English, but they can sing it. They can <laughs> sing it. And they can say Tamla Motown, which is the, you know, it's, it's always, I'll just say this and you can move on, but it's always fascinating to me that people who are in these remote places in the world feel as emotionally connected mm-hmm to this unique brand in Detroit called Motown, as we do. I understand why it's personal for us, but it is, um, you know, it's always fascinating the power that music has to sort of bring people together, to heal, to make them feel good. Um, So we're we're extremely grateful for the opportunity um, and for the gift of this unprecedented generosity uh, because it allows, it means that what we do, we can do even bigger and even better on a larger scale. We'll talk a little bit about the structure of the, the, the financing, the gift itself here in a minute. But Rabbi, I do want to ask about your experience with your museum, your center as an economic driver. How, how do you try to explain yeah. that effect so, in your community of Farmington Hills? So I, I actually said this to Dave. It's only one data point. I can't say that this you know explains the entire situation. But our experience was when we put out uh, applications for positions within the museum that our uh, attraction for qualified great candidates far exceeds what you would expect to see for um, a, you know, a, a small community like Detroit. You see people coming to interested in moving to Detroit to come work for the Holocaust Museum that's located in Metro Detroit. And the opportunity to work in a museum, especially a museum where they feel they can make a difference, where they can have an impact on the community in which they live, is a real driver. And so uh, we just did a hire. We brought in, we had a, a grant from National Endowment Humanities, uh, and we brought in 12 new part-time educators. And they are a talented group of people who could have gone anywhere, but they want to stay in Detroit, and this is an opportunity to do it. And so it, it is an interesting thing to see that you can, you can drive a, a community of, of people who care about the place, the place that they live by bringing in the funding that you need to be able to do these. When I talk about a grant, that's a one-time thing. What the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation just did, that's, that's at a whole nother level. This is something that's going to be there forever. And so that really raises the bar on what we're able to produce and what we're able to attract. And Dave, unpacking these numbers, <laughs> it takes a minute. But, but please, when we look at Another that $100 pencil. billion, dollars, um, how is this going to work? My favorite phrase, explain it to us like we're five. I, I get that. I um, And having a five-year-old granddaughter, I'm not sure I'm going to succeed with this, but I'll do my best. <laughs> so uh, our trustees, in looking at the potential of this gift, said we've got to accomplish three things. One, we need to think long-term. How do we get an output to these institutions that matter so much forever through an endowment? So sixty, roughly $60 million is going to the Community Foundation, and it will sit untouched for 10 years. And that will accrue, it'll appreciate, and it will, it will uh, um, have improvement, I hope, in, in its uh, status at 60 million, and it should grow to about 80 to 85 million. That will throw off about 3.75 million a year once you take fees out. So we, feel we, we felt we couldn't wait 10 years. So for nine years, starting next year, the foundation will put out 3.75 million in the following categories. Um, sustainability. 11 institutions will receive sustainable funding annually. That's $3 million. 
smaller institutions we didn't want to leave out. So 500000 a year will be put aside for smaller institutions to, to uh, apply for. And uh, then inclusion and equity was very important to, uh, to our trustees and to us. We've got to make sure these institutions are as welcoming and inviting as possible to bring in diverse populations for the music, for the storytelling, for the performances. And so 250000 a year will go to hire staff and add other capacity for the Community Foundation to manage the funds and to have ongoing dialogue with all of the arts institutions and the sector writ large around this issue of being more welcoming. Different organizations getting different amounts of money, right? We see the Detroit Institute of Arts, $700,000 a year uh, for decades to come, right? Uh, in perpetuity. Um, same with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And then you see the Motown Museum, $200,000, $100,000 for the Holocaust Museum. How did you go about deciding who gets what? So so no pun intended, but more art than science. Um, <laughs> the um, We hired a, a national firm to help us do analysis of the institutions across the both the regions we're working in. We looked at attendance, budget size, financial health, uh, future capital projects, where, where this was all going. And um, the reality was, while that was useful data in making some final decisions, there was no magic formula. You know, the science was the data. The art was figuring out how to split up $3 million a year. And so our trustees, looking at the breadth and the variety of the sector, pick these 11 institutions for sustainability. We could have picked different ones. We're hopeful as others look at this this project that they will pick some others, that they'll contribute to these in a different way. But yeah, more art than science, science on the data points, but a lot of discussion and back and forth on which institutions we would look at for which reasons. So, so one more point on that. If you look at the 11, seven of them are clustered in greater downtown. So there's a cluster economic strategy, including Motown. Two of them are already huge economic drivers. The uh, the zoo and the Henry Ford bring in more than a million people each per year. So they're already driving. We didn't want to leave them out. And then the Holocaust Center and the Arab American Museum provide a fabric to the community and the diversity of the community that no other institutions offer. So we felt we needed to include them as well. Was there any debate of, okay, have we picked the usual suspects again? Are, are we not spreading this out to organizations that may feel left behind? The debate took place over a course of about nine months um, to, to really structure around these 11, which led to this half a million a year in place for uh, smaller and mid-sized institutions that aren't on the list you know, that half a million turns out to be a, between a 10 and a $12 million endowment when you extrapolate it out that should service small and mid-sized institutions forever as well. So uh, I wish we could do more. I wish we had more money to give and we could spread it to more institutions. But yeah, $100 million was our max on this one. <laughs> now, Robin, $200,000 a year for operational costs, right? Um how do you plan to, to use that money? So for, we're in a, a slightly different position than some of our, our peers. The museum has not had the luxury of having endowment. And so, you know, when we talk about something that's, that's really transformative, we become a different kind of organization as a result of that annual gift. And so for us, putting those dollars away... So that, you know, God forbid we have something else like 
what we've experienced in the last two years, um, something unforeseen happened, we know we have support and we have the um, the peace of mind that there's there's sustainability. Um, we're in the middle of you know a major fifty five million dollar campaign, knowing that 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 campus that we are building has security um, is really important to us. And so for us, that's going to be the difference. And also part of this gift, a one-time $5 million capital grant towards that $55 million uh, expansion of your campus that's yeah. ongoing. Where are you at in, in that campaign? And, and what does this gift mean in this uh, now five-year journey, right? Yes. Started in 2016. So I'm excited to say that because of the Ralph C. Wilson Jr. Foundation gift, um, we're at $37 million. And so we are well on our way. Uh, if you drive by the museum today, you will see today it's a bit of a muddy mess um, because phase two has begun construction. And so we are excavating um, the front area to create a, a beautiful plaza that will be a wonderful addition to the Detroit community, the Northwest Goldberg community, um, and to all of our, our visitors and, and residents um, throughout the state. So all of that is happening now, and that will complete next summer, and we'll go right into phase three. Rabbi, we talked a little bit about the idea of operational costs and the issues with fundraising around that. When you go to a donor and you say, we need HVAC support, we need new windows, <laughs> that's not always the sexiest thing to try to raise money around, right? right. That, that really is a challenge. Um, for ongoing support, you know, your museum, you have membership, you have things like that, but um, when it comes time to, to spend money in places that are not so visible to the public, that are not one-offs where someone can put their name associated with it, it's much harder. And I think you know, Dave said it before, the idea here is to sort of reset the philanthropic community's mindset about these operating support kind of, of gifts because that's really what the institutions really need. Um, if they're always chasing what's the next project, what's the next thing that we're going to do that's mm -hmm. going to attract the dollars in, it, there's, there's no stability for the staff. There's no stability for the institution. It becomes a, a treadmill that can be very difficult. And having steady income to be able to support the ongoing expenses of a museum, of other you know, uh, arts and cultural organizations here in the community, that's really game-changing. I know that's a word that we're using a lot today, but um, it really helps, it really helps uh, set people's uh, expectations on what you can budget for, like Robin was saying, what your, what your needs are going to be, and for the unfortunate downtimes that, I mean, nobody, nobody expected the last year and a half, right? And uh, the ability of each of our institutions to be able to weather that changes significantly. I mean, we should never see something like this again in our lifetimes, but we understand now that we need to be able to be prepared for things like that. Is there a, a vision right now for, for how the center is planning to use that annual gift? So the big picture is that this is going on forever. So it changes your, your base expectations about how you can budget um, in the near term. So we did talk about you know heating and cooling, right? So we learned during the pandemic that you can make a building uh, uh, healthier for the visitors, the guests, and for the staff by changing how you do filtration. Well, we're going to find the dollars to do something like that. Well, yeah. these are dollars you can use for something like that. Um, you know, the people who come in with low vision needs into a museum, how do you service those people better? So again, you know, these are things that are, are ongoing items that a sharp eye in the museum wants to do something about. But when you sharpen the pencil after you sharpen the eye and you look at your budget, you say, I don't know that we have the dollars for it. This is where the dollars come from.
I appreciate you talking about including uh, disabled communities, because when we talk about equity, when we talk about diversity, I do feel they are a a group often are not included in that conversation so much. Why is that in particular a focus for you? I mean, you think about the story of the Holocaust, the the first murders, the first organized murders that were performed by the Nazis were of Aryan, blonde, blue eyed people who didn't have the either uh, mental fitness or physical fitness that the Nazis thought were appropriate. And so the first thing they did was they killed these people off. And then they convinced the German people that this was okay, that these people were, they called them useless eaters. That's what they saw them as. And after they convinced the people that that was okay, then they took the next step. And they said, well, these other folks who in our communities are are not contributing to the common cause and we need to get rid of them. And it, it gave people the sense. So when you're talking about the Holocaust and you want to understand the root causes of what what makes people unable to care for someone who's not exactly like them? Um, dealing with those questions of disability is right up there. And if, if we can't, if we can't walk the walk and talk the talk about what we're teaching. How, how are people supposed to be able to learn those lessons? And so that's really core for us: is making sure that when the visitor comes in, they feel welcomed and they understand that others would be feel, feel welcomed by coming in. I mean, it's a hard topic. Right, coming in to learn about one of the greatest atrocities that were committed in the 20th century is not like your Sunday afternoon. Oh, we're going to go do this and then run for a picnic, right? So it's a challenge. How do you give people a comfort level to be able to come in to face those kinds of conversations? Because if they really do face them, you can change the face of the community here. You can have people think differently about their neighbors, about those they don't know, about you know. I, I say I don't you have to love everybody, but you do have to worry about them. Right. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish. And it starts going into something beyond economic impact. Right. right? That that is a, a cultural impact. That's a community impact. That's on a very human level. Right. We hear a story like that and your view of making your museum more accessible. Robin, the Motown Museum, people traveling all over the world may not speak the same language but can come together over that Motown 45, right? That sort of experience. So Dave, out of this, how has that experience been of really seeing what this can mean in these communities of of what these cultural institutions are trying to accomplish? So we did this out of our economic development bucket. So we could get caught up in numbers here if we're (laughs) not careful. It's important, I think, especially if we look at Oxford and what's just happened there, the importance of these institutions as part of civil society. Um, they're the importance as institutions providing comfort and healing of, uh, institutions teaching compassion and humanity that happens in performing arts, whether it's music or dance or theater, it happens in history museums through storytelling so that we can see what a civil society should look like and what it didn't look like before we can see it when in visual arts in so many ways. So while this comes out of our economic development interest area, you can't deny the civil society is deeply affected by these institutions. So that had an effect on our trustees as well. And uh, and we see that as a very important part of this gift. There is something about the pandemic, taking a look at our lives, what's important, how we work, who we work for, how we spend our time, and, and what we value. And I'm curious, as people started to come back into your institutions did, did it feel different? Was there a different level of gratitude or, or vibe with your patrons? I, I'm so happy you asked me that question <laughs> because I, I, I wanted to, to piggyback on something that Dave said. Um, and it was the reaction that we saw from people coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. And, and that moment when visitors started to re-engage with cultural institutions – 
it was fascinating that they were making their way to Hitsville. So even though we had, you know, a significantly reduced number of people on a tour, we were selling out. And they were making their, and I was asking people because I personally wanted to work the front line and do the health screening because I wanted to talk to our visitors and engage them and understand where they were. And there was such a need for healing, joy, re-engagement, and visiting those spaces that reconnected them to something that was normal or that was their foundation, um, that inspired them, gave them joy. That was that was the purpose. And, and so it helped you to understand that our organizations are more than just museums or institutions in our community. We really are part of the healing process. And, and at Motown, um, you know, it's easy to just think entertainment and that kind of thing. But what I probably love most is when people who are very different, look different, believe different, um, live differently, find themselves together in that same space because it's in that moment they have to look at each other and say, ah, we may be more alike than different. And so it's that, it's that power of bringing people together and that sense of community um, that I think is very beautiful. And you, you see that in cultural institutions. It, it's uh, the coming together as the museums. We, we talked because in the beginning of the pandemic, as the, the Center City Museum started to come out, they did some work together. And so before we reopened, we kind of sent secret shoppers. And I, I, I went and, and did a tour at Motown and at the Science Center um, because they were open um, before us. And we wanted really to understand how visitors were interacting with the spaces. So when we finally opened a few weeks later um, and watching the relief on people's faces of being yeah. able to be out. And uh, well, on half of their faces, um, as they're able to be out, right? <laughs> the top half. You could start to read eyes really well, right? Um, but but people's interest in in reconnecting and in in feeling um, again the the need for study and understanding. Um, it was also a challenge for us because of the school groups that would normally be coming to the building um, during the entire last school year. That we had only really a small handful of groups that were able to come. Almost everybody was doing visits virtually. And so we had to figure out how do you reclaim some of that connection, you know, via Zoom. It's just, it, it's not a natural. And so we worked really hard at understanding what is it that makes that visit so impactful. And one of the things that we did was through individual artifacts that the kids got to study together with an educator, we were able to connect them. So it, you're not going to walk around, the whole, you know, carry an iPad through the whole museum and sort of show them a 90 minute, it's just not going to work. But you can, we have uh, paintings that were done by a, a Holocaust survivor taught himself to paint late in life and told his own life story through these paintings. And if you study those together, you can start to understand experience somebody else went through. And you're not going to understand the full story through, you know, a, a, a one class, you know, so 40 minutes of, of being, but you can start to get a picture of things and people can start to connect. In some cases, these were kids who were in their own bedrooms, you know, zooming back into the classroom. We were zooming into them. And in some cases, the kids are together in the school and we're zooming into the, um, but the skills that we learned there we're going to continue when this pandemic is long over because we figured out how to connect yeah. people in a way that before this, you know, my, you know, my, my mom, she's not a youngster, but she knows how to, you know, zoom together and, and, and see her grandkids and see her great grandkids and they live all over the world. And 
these are connections that our institutions are figuring out how to do now in a way that nobody ever asked us to do before. But now that we've learned how to do it, we're never giving it up. So those connections work in the building, but bringing people together from far apart also. Yeah, a lot. I think a lot of learning of, of how do we <laughs> interact with people outside of our four walls, you know. It was a strange silver lining on it somehow. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Let's look ahead here a bit uh, for, for the three people here at the table. Uh, with the Wilson Foundation, when are we going to see the next $200 million drop? <laughs> <laughs> There, there are a few things we're working on. I don't know that we'll get to $200 million, but um, what's interesting is the spend-down mandate that Mr. Wilson put in place. So he picked the four life trustees and said, you figure out where to spend it and what to spend it on. I'm not telling you, but do it in 20 years. So we've got a little over 13 years left, and um, it changes the game. There's an urgency that comes in play. But there's this interesting balance. If you move before the opportunity presents itself— it's not money that's well spent. So uh, I would say there's there's more opportunity coming. Uh, we've got a few things in the queue. Can't predict when it'll come out. And they may not be $200 million, but but more to come, Ryan. Thanks for asking that question. There are nonprofit organizations licking their chops right now. I, I apologize. Thank <laughs> yes. you. My cell phone just started going off. <laughs> I, I apologize for opening you up to that. Uh, Robin, when we look into 2022... And beyond, from exhibitions to bigger picture stuff, obviously you've got the campus fundraising going on, but what are you looking ahead to for the Motown Museum? The expansion for sure, um, and completing the expansion, but even more importantly, the programming that we're doing, and just continuing to um, build our programs for young aspiring entrepreneurs, for talent um, in this city. We talked about it earlier. You know, we've got to keep folks in this city. Um, we have so much to offer, so much rich history, um, and Motown is uniquely positioned to, you know, address both of those things and at the same time. So for the artist and the entrepreneur, and so continuing to build those programs, and um, as the rabbi said, it's it's we've learned that we can move well beyond the walls of Hitsville, and that we have fans all over this globe. Uh, who now participate in our program. So it's continuing to do that and just get better and better at what we do. Rabbi, when we talked on the phone, you said, when was the last time you had been out to see us, Ryan? And I said, I think high school. And you said, everyone says that. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on with the museum? So yeah, so come to holocaustnet.org and make reservations and um, take a look at what we've got going on. Um, We're closing a special exhibit now at the end of the year. And in January, we're going to be reopening a new exhibit about book smugglers, um, these are um, archivists who the Nazis um, res- required to take the great uh, literary works of Lithuania when it was occupied by the Nazis to send them to Berlin, to the museums in Berlin. And instead, they sent them the like stuff they could get rid of and smuggled the quality works out of the country. And the byline of the book that this is based on is, would you... Uh, risk your life to save a book and um, there's all kinds of resistance in the stories of the Holocaust that I think have resonance for us today it's not just about um, people who you know risk their lives on the front lines but also about people who saw the humanity in pieces of their lives and found ways to honor those to lift them up and to make sure those stories would always be told the the exhibit that's leaving now 
um, is a story of a diary of a woman who, um, a young woman who wrote a diary um, and brought it with her to Auschwitz. And it was discovered at the end of the war by a Russian soldier. It seems that the diary was hidden by a, uh, an inmate at great personal risk because they wanted someone to find that diary after the war. These are acts of heroism. And so we want people to come in and hear these stories. So yes, you have to come into the building. If you're not comfortable yet, there's stuff that we can do online. We're doing online programming. But the stories that you hear in the building, these are really powerful. And we want to invite people to come back. We're, we're, you know, we're around the corner for most of us here in the, the listening area. If, you're in, if you can hear WDT or you know, you're 25 minutes from the, from the museum. So really, we want to invite everybody back. I, I'd say looking forward, um, you know, Robin's... Uh, uh, thoughts about the future here. There's lots of good things. We're actually working on a, a plan now for a, a core update to the, to the exhibit. Um, we're working with some really great designers um, and, uh, and exhibit, uh, ex- exhibit designers to, to come up with uh, contemporary ways of telling story so that it's engaging. And um, that's going to be something that we're going to be opening up hopefully at the end of 2023. Um, so see the current exhibits before they're gone. But it's this is um, an important story that people have to hear because we want to engage them so that we can educate them so they can be empowered to move forward. And really, it, it, the, these are the kinds of things that our culture needs, um, that our society needs. And it's not just kids. You talk about going as a teenager. We try to get all the high schools to send their kids. But it's also something adults have to hear. And God knows there's been all sorts of terrible things that a society has been faced with. And I think that those kinds of lessons would be really important for people to hear. We'd certainly love to have you back on Culture Shift to talk about that book smuggling uh, exhibit for sure. And and truly an open invitation to all three of you. I, I just have to really deeply thank you because it, it's been so long. I have sat around this table with three people <laughs> and have been able to have an in-person uh, deep dive conversation. So uh, Rabbi Robin and Dave, thank you truly for, for coming in and talking to me on Culture Shift. It's great to be in person. Thanks for having us.